0: Psalm 18, one of my favorite psalms of the Old Testament. And actually, I love the book of Psalms in general. I think it's perhaps one of the most beautifully written books uh, in the entire Bible. And really, when you kind of reflect on the psalms as a whole, uh, it's essentially a collection of Hebrew songs that they would use for worship, Much like we just sang this morning. These were their songs. These were the songs that they would sing in church, so to speak. Uh, This is sort of um, God's divine hymn book that we have uh, recorded for us. But I think what makes it so interesting is that the Psalms was written with a lot of I would like to call it gritty language, if you read the Psalms and read the things that David and others are going through, uh, the, the words are authentic. They are real. They are genuine. They are not uh, uh, very uh, uh, kingly, I suppose, at times. They are words that uh, 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 relate to us. They're words that I think we can all relate to. These words are kind of candid in their language. They kind of remove the veneer that, that David was this man who was you know, uh, uh, unfamiliar with uh, heartache or suffering. And I think you know if you were to read the Psalms and it, it, those preachers that are uh, uh, that are preaching today that often claim that you know if you just put your faith in Jesus and you put a little money in the in the pot in their pockets then life's problems are going to go away. Those types of preachers who preach that way kind of lose all sense of credibility when they come to the Psalms. <laughs> and in fact, because David's own life is uh, a testament to the opposite of that. Once he receives um, Samuel's anointing, uh, if you turn to First Samuel, you don't have to turn there, but if you remember Samuel's anointing, uh, David's life kind of goes kind of haywire. He goes on the run for the rest of his life until he ascends the throne. His life kind of looks the opposite of that once the anointing of God came on his life. But I think that's what is so real about the Psalms. They kind of are real about some of the uh, expectations that aren't met in our life. They're real about the exhaustion that we feel in life. And I think also the idea that David was this, you know, super spiritual, 100% all the time spiritual person kind of falls by the wayside when you read the Psalms. He is a man who often doubted God. There's psalm after psalm and word after word, phrase after phrase and line after line of David doubting the God that he believed in, doubting uh, perhaps what he um, would come to expect in life. He was uh, worried about perhaps what was gonna come, uh, what he was facing. He struggled with isolation. David struggled with loneliness and rejection and fear and abandonment and often regret too. And I think that's what makes David so relatable. We can relate to those feelings, right? We can, we have, I don't know about you, but I have felt those things too. I felt lonely and I felt rejected and I felt uh, abandoned. But I think that's also what I think is so relatable about the Psalms because it's not as if David himself is one who has mastered these things that he's writing. I often get the opposite sense that when David is writing these Psalms, it's almost as if he's writing to convince himself that this is true. (laughs) He's writing even at the very beginning of Psalm 18 where he says, I will love thee, O Lord, my God, my strength. And he goes on to describe his God. He's convincing himself That this is the God that he believes in. I will love thee. And here is Psalm 18. It's a magnificent psalm. Is often recognized not just because it's a book of the Bible, a chapter in the Psalms, but it's also, if you just step back and just, you can appreciate it from its sort of literary expertise and beauty. It's a beautifully written psalm, and it's actually an older psalm of David. He was perhaps in his late 60s by the time he wrote this. And in fact, if you turn to 2 Samuel 22, you'll find these exact words pretty much. Uh, repeated there. So it's, it's actually believed that he wrote 2 Samuel 22, and then this psalm here, Psalm 18, is kind of more, uh, uh, it was kind of changed for public worship, so to speak. And um, if you look at the, I don't know if your Bible has this, mine does, but it has the little prescript before the psalm. Mine kind of says that these were the words of this song In the day that the Lord delivered him that is David from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. And really, it's not that day there. That day of deliverance isn't a singular day. It's more like David is recollecting and all the things that God had done in his life. So he's, he's, at, he's, he's an elderly man now, and he's come to the end of his life, and now he's sort of uh, remembering all of those times that God delivered him. And this is sort of his sort of exaltation and praise of that God. And so really quickly this morning, I want to look at three truths of that deliverance that we're going to see here. Three truths that I think help us in seeing the God of deliverance, especially in, as, as we can see it in this chapter. Really quickly, look at verses four through six. David says, "'The sorrows of death compassed me, "'and the floods of ungodly men made me afraid. "'The sorrows of hell compassed me about. "'The snares of death prevented me. "'In my distress I called upon the Lord, "'and I cried unto my God.'" He heard my voice out of his temple, and my cry came before him, even into his ears. Here we see, I think, a truth about grief. Very quickly, a truth about grief. I, as I said at the beginning, I love that David doesn't describe or disguise the fact that he is uh, in distress. He doesn't try and hide the fact that he is grieving, that he is going through a very terrible time in his life. All throughout the Psalms, we have evidence of that, where he is open with God. He's honest with God. He's vulnerable with God. So much so that when he thought that life wasn't uh, what he expected, when, he, when David thought that life kind of stunk, he let God know. And in fact, in Psalm 27, 9, uh, you don't have to turn there. I'll read it. Psalm 29, David cries out. He says, hide not thy face far from me. Put not thy servant away in anger. Thou hast been my help. Leave me not, neither forsake me, O God of my salvation. You see there, he's feeling abandoned by God and he's crying out to him, leave me not, don't forsake me. Or elsewhere in Psalm 102, verses one and two, he says this, David prays and he says, hear my prayer, O Lord, and let my cry come before thee. Hide not thy face from me in the day when I am in trouble. Incline thine ear unto me in the day when I call. Answer me speedily. Here we kind of get the sense that he is feeling unheard as if God has kind of stopped his ear to hearing him. Or I'll read very quickly in Psalm, verse, uh, Psalm 6 and verses 6 and 7. He says this, I am weary with my groaning all the night Make on my bed to swim. (laughs) I water my couch with my tears. Mine eye is consumed because of grief. It waxeth old because of all mine enemies. Here we can sense and feel just the intense uh, grief of David. And he's not trying to disguise it to his Lord. He's opening it up. He's versing it to him. And then here in our psalm, Psalm 18, those verses we just read, uh, he feels death all around him. That's what he says, verse 4, the sorrows of death compassed me. He feels it all around him. It's surrounding him. That word "sorrows" there in my Bible—it's better translated "cords" or "ropes," actually—and it's kind of uh, suggestive of this old, ancient hunting method, where the hunters would uh, surround a property of land, a piece of land, with ropes and cords, sort of surrounding their prey, uh, what they're going after, and if, and slowly but gradually they would tighten those cords, and it would uh, the 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 ropes would uh, um, make the the property of land much and much smaller, making a lot, lot, easier to uh, hunt what they're going after, and so he's using that picture to kind of describe these ropes of death, these ropes of death that he feels that are coming around him. They're encircling him. They're closing all around him. They're tightening around him. And I think he's he's remembering a, a specific time in his life. If you turn to, um, well, you don't have to turn there yet, but um, I think he's remembering sort of this time in what is called the Cave of Adullam. Really quickly, I'm just gonna kind of survey David's life to set this up, because in Psalm or Second Samuel 22 we find David on the run, and it's much a much different place from where David started. In Psalm, First Samuel 16, we have the story of how David is anointed. He's the youngest, uh, bon, uh, youngest of his brothers, and he's anointed by Samuel. And um, then in Second, First Samuel 17, we have the picture or the story of uh, David. Um, slaying the giant Goliath. And so he goes from a shepherd boy to on the front lines and he's killing this giant. And in the Psalm, or excuse me, 1 Samuel 18, uh, we see that the king Saul is already jealous of all the success that David is, is, is building up for himself. And actually in 1 Samuel 18 verse 8, I'm going to read it really quickly. And Saul was very wroth. And the saying displeased him, and he said, "They have ascribed unto David ten thousands, and to me they have ascribed but thousands. And what can he have more but the kingdom? And Saul eyed David from that day forward. He was jealous of David, because David was getting all of the success, all of these accolades, and that's where we get into First Samuel 19, where uh, 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 Saul tries to actually kill. David. He tries to spear him to the wall, if, uh, 1 Samuel 19, verse 9, and the evil spirit from the Lord was upon Saul as he sat in his house with his javelin in his hand, and David played with his hand. And Saul sought to smite David even to the wall with the javelin. But he slipped away out of Saul's presence, and he smote David, or excuse me, and he smote the javelin into the wall, and David fled and escaped that night. So now he's on the run and in 1 Samuel 20 through 22, we have these scene after scene little vignette of David on the run and throughout the rest of David's life, he would be on the run from Saul. So he goes from this farm boy to a fugitive now. He's on the run from the king of Israel himself. And all the way in 1 Samuel 22 verse one, we find David and he comes to this cave. 1 Samuel twenty-two one says David therefore departed thence and escaped to the cave of Adullam, and when his brethren and all his father's house heard it, they went down thither to him. This cave has to be kind of come known in David's life of this as a place of intense emotional darkness and grief. It's a place where he cries out to God, and in fact, in Psalm thirteen is sort of the words that many believe that David prayed while he was in that cave. I'll just read these words quickly because they they give us a picture of the grief that David was feeling, especially at this moment. David says in Psalm 13, "'How long wilt thou forget me, O Lord, forever? "'How long wilt thou hide thy face from me? "'How long will I take counsel in my soul, "'having no sorrow in my heart daily?' How long shall mine enemy be exalted over me? Consider and hear me, O Lord, my God. Lighten mine eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest mine enemy say I have prevailed against him, and those that, have, that trouble me rejoice when I am moved. Life has been turned upside down for David. Now he's on the run, now he's in a cave hiding out for his life. And just there in the opening words, how long will you forget me, God? Are you going to forget me forever? This is not how my life was supposed to go. (laughs) And I think that's what David is hearkening back to in Psalm 18. He's remembering those times perhaps in the cave when he was alone, when he was isolated, when he was fearful of even the next hour. And yet he is vulnerable to his God. He is vulnerable to the God that he believes in. And he's saying, God, this is how I'm feeling. I know what I'm supposed to believe, but God, right now in this moment, I feel like you have forgotten me. God, where are you? And I think that's a lesson to us. It's a lesson to me. You know, the one uh, comedian, he once said this, that when you meet somebody for the first time, you're not really meeting them, you're meeting their representative. (laughs) And though he was trying to make a joke out of that, I think a lot of the times that's true. I can, I can tell you this myself. We come to church with smiles on our faces and we shake people's hands and we laugh and we joke and inside we might be crying. Inside we might be grieving. Inside we might have hearts that are raging because of the intense uh, grief that we feel. And yet we shake people's hands and we try and make small talk and we bring our religious representatives into church to try and make people think that nothing is wrong but I think that's exactly why the church exists. It, exert, it exists for people that are grieving. It exists for people that are hurting because this is the place where we find the person who loves the hurting, where we hear about the grace uh, for people who are grieving. That's why the church is, exists. And in fact, I love what the great Protestant reformer Martin Luther said, he says, May a merciful God preserve me from a Christian church in which everyone is a saint. (laughs) I want to be and remain in the church and the little flock of the faint-hearted, the feeble and the ailing, who feel and recognize the wretchedness of their sins, who sigh and cry to God incessantly for comfort and help, who believe in the forgiveness of sins. I pray to always be a part of the church of the little flock of the (laughs) faint-hearted. who aren't afraid to come and say that, yes, I am grieving. This past year was a, 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 a difficult year for my family. My mom went through a, a, a very intense um, time of depression. And in, in fact, still, she's still battling that. <laughs> and there were times when I would go to church too, smiling in, inside. I knew that I wasn't really feeling that. (laughs) I was like, David, how long, oh Lord, are you going to forget me and my family because we are going through something we've never faced before? (laughs) And in fact, coming to church is the place where I love to come to church because I'm reminded of the fact that that's the whole purpose of this whole thing anyways. As we're reminded of the fact that Jesus is the one who relieves us from our griefs because as we read in Isaiah 53, he's the one who's taken our griefs as his own. And this is the place too, as we are all here, we're all uh, people here, it's the place to realize that you're not alone in your griefs, in your isolation, you're actually not isolated at all because we are all here as the family of God. And I think even as we sing, as we pray, as we cry, as we laugh together, This place, this church, is a place to cry out for uh, relief, cry out in unison for grace. That's what the church is. That's the truth about grief. And that actually leads me to my next point, which is a truth about grace. If you look at verse 16, David continues in his psalm and he says this. Verse 16, he sent from above. He took me... He drew me out of many waters. He delivered me from my strong enemy and from them which hated me, for they were too strong for me. They prevented me in the day of my calamity, but the Lord was my stay. I love these words. And I love the fact that... um, These cries for help that we perhaps utter, these cries for help that David was uttering, they didn't stay within the walls of that cave. When we pray to God, it doesn't just get sucked up into the walls of our room. And in fact, as David says here, they go into the very ears of God himself. In verse six again, in my distress, I called upon the Lord and cried unto my God. He heard my voice out of his temple, and my cry came before him even into his ears. Isn't that amazing, the fact that when we pray, God hears it and it comes into the very ears of the God who is holding the world in the palm of his hand. God is not deaf to our desperation, he doesn't uh, our prayers for grace don't go unheard before him but he listens and more than that in these verses that we just read 16 through 18 we we see the fact that he doesn't just listen he acts on our behalf cuz look at look at the verses again look at who's doing all the action he sent from above he took he drew out of many waters he delivered They prevented me in the day of my claim, but the Lord was my stay. He brought me forth also into a large place. He delivered me because he delighted in me. God is the one who is doing all the actions here. Did you notice that? He's the one who's doing all of the verbs. (laughs) It points to the fact that I think that God is completely sovereign in all of our deliverances of life. He is the one who is moving. He is the one who is doing the action. We are the one who, are, who have been prescribed to just put our stay, put our faith in the one who is doing the action. God takes matters into his own hands to rescue us and deliver us from our drowning. Verse 16, he sent from above, he took me, and he drew me up out of many waters. You know, uh, my little girl Lydia, she just turned two years old in January, uh, this past January. But I already think that she is actually a better swimmer than I was when I was her age. (laughs) I I say that because she loves the water and she loves being in the water. But I remember when I was younger, I was probably about five at the time, I uh, was having a pool party at my cousin's house and um, I nearly drowned. (laughs) I just, uh, I wasn't looking where I was going or something and I fell into the water and I just wasn't swimming. I just kind of froze and just kind of started sinking and drowning. (laughs) And my cousin, he pulled me up by the scruff of my neck and he, I was just came up spitting and, and trying to catch air and uh, spitting water out and coughing. And I always think of that picture when I read this verse. <laughs> when, when he says, he drew me out of many waters, I think of that. <laughs> That like God drew him up spitting and coughing and, and breathing out water. And that's what David felt like, a person who was drowning. And yet God lifted him up by his own hand. And that's what God is for us. God is, I kind of like to say it this way, God is like our heavenly lifeguard. And he pulls us to safety. And why does he do it? Because of verse 19, which I love. He brought me forth also into a large place. He delivered me because he delighted in me. Think about that, that God delivered you this morning because he delighted in you. God delivered me because he delighted in me. Yes, the wretched sinner that I am, the wretched sort of rebeller against his word that I am, he delivered me even despite that because he delighted in, in delivering me. David, the very man who doubted his God, was delivered by that same God that he doubted because God delighted delights in delivering his sons and daughters. And that's what God does for us. And this is the mystery of the gospel that we have for us in this word. It's the mystery of the gospel that's unexplainable, that's illogical. It doesn't make sense that God would delight in sinners enough to the fact that he would send his son to die for them, but that's the very truth that we have in the gospel. That he sent his son to die for those very people that put him on the cross. And it doesn't make sense that the God would delight in us, his enemies, so much so that he would take our place of punishment. And so much so that he would bleed the very blood that would become the remission of our sins. (laughs) You think about that. That the very blood that we drew on the cross becomes the very blood that washes us clean, white as snow, that we may put on the righteousness of Christ himself. This is the mystery of the gospel that he delights in delivering sinners. And it doesn't make sense apart from this truth of grace. That you are fully known by God. He knows the deepest, darkest corners of your hearts. And yet he delights in you. He delights in you. He knows everything about you. And he's still loving and forgiving and gracious towards you. This reminds me of that verse in Romans Romans 5, verse 8, where Paul says, But God commendeth his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He died for us even while we were sinners, even while we were enemies of him. This is the mystery of the gospel, it's this mystery of grace. And it leads us to the third thing that I want to point out to you in Psalm 18. We have a truth about grief and a truth about grace, but also, thirdly, a truth about God. Because look at verses 1 through 3 again. David says, I will love thee, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my strength in whom I will trust, my buckler and the horn of my salvation in my high tower. I will call upon the Lord, who is worthy to be praised. So shall I be saved from mine enemies. I get the sense here as David is exalting his God that he's sort of running out of words, right? He's he's trying to describe his God, his deliverer, from all of these trials in his life in his life, and he, he starts to sing, My strength and my rock and my deliverer, my fortress, my buckler. He's trying to use anything that he can use and that's before him to describe this God. And I love that he's resolving to love the Lord. He looks back on his past life, all the things that he has endured throughout his life, and he resolves even still at his older age. He says, I will love thee because of all of the th- times that you have delivered me. And he trusts in this God who is unchangeable. And I love that he begins in verse 2 where he says, the Lord is my rock. And if you notice at the end of the psalm, in verse 46, he says, the Lord liveth and blessed be my rock. He begins and ends this glorious song by affirming the fact that God is his rock. That solid rock on which he stands. You know, when I felt like giving up in life, these are the verses that I remember and come back to just like David, that he remembers and comes back to the fact that his God, what his rock, and that no matter what else may give way in our life, no matter else what may uh, fall away in our life, the one thing that stays the same is the fact that God is with us and God was with David in the cave and God is with us even now as we are enduring trial. God is always with us when we're afflicted we can trust the God of the afflicted. And when we feel like giving up, we can uh, come to God who is our refuge and security and strength and solace. Look at verse 32, where David says, It is God that girdeth me with strength and maketh my way perfect. He maketh my feet like hind's feet and setteth me upon the, my high places. He teacheth my hands to war so that a bow, a bow of steel is broken in mine arms. Thou hast also given me the shield of thy salvation, and thy right hand hath holden me up, and thy gentleness hath made me great. Thou hast enlarged my steps under me, that my feet did not slip. These are the wonderful truths of the God that was with David. But I think, really quickly, I want to draw your attention to verse 7 through 15, because I think the ultimate truth comes right here in these verses. We see these powerful images, these powerful words that David uses. Look what he says. And then the earth shook and trembled. The foundations also of the hills moved and were shaken because he was wroth. Then there went up a smoke out of his nostrils and fire out of his mouth, devoured. Coals were kindled by it. He bowed the heavens also and came down and darkness was under his feet and he rode upon a cherub and did fly. Yea, he did fly upon the wings of the wind. He made darkness his secret place, his pavilion round about him were dark waters and thick clouds of the skies. In the brightness that was before him, his thick clouds passed, hailstones and coals of fire. The Lord also thundered into the heavens, and the highest gave his voice, hailstones and coals of fire. Yea, he sent out his arrows and scattered them, and he shot out lightnings and discomfited them. Then the channels of waters were seen, and the foundations of the world were discovered at thy rebuke, O Lord, at the blast of the breath of thy nostrils." Now this isn't necessarily a historical thing that David is uh, remembering or, or, or writing down for us. He's sort of using words and pictures and imagery to showcase the fury of God's uh, deliverance in David's salvation. It's sort of a dramatic picture here that David is describing. But I also think that it's not just a poetic thing that David's doing. I actually think it's sort of of prophetic, actually. Because I can't help but read these lines and and think about another time in the scriptures when the earth quaked and the mountains shook and darkness covered the earth. Stay right there in Psalm 18. I'm gonna read for you Matthew 27, verse 45. This, of course, is the scene of Jesus on the cross called Golgotha. And it says, then cometh he to his disciples and saith, or excuse me, that's Matthew 26, excuse me, Matthew 27 verse 45 says, now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land unto the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour Jesus cried with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli lama sabachthani, that is to say, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Some of them that stood there, when they heard that, said, "This man calleth for Elias." And straightway one of them ran and took a sponge, and filled it with vinegar, and put it, put on a reed, and gave him to drink. The rest said, "Let be, let us see whether Elias will come to save him." Jesus, when he had cried again with a loud voice, yielded up the ghost. And behold, the veil of the temple was rent in twain from the top to the bottom. And the earth did quake and the rocks rent and the graves were opened. And many bodies of the saints which slept arose and came out of the graves after his resurrection and went into the holy city and appeared unto many. Now when the centurion and when they that were with him watching Jesus saw the earthquake and those things that were done, they feared greatly saying, truly, this was the son of God. You see, I think David is also foretelling the time when the ultimate deliverance of all of our lives is gonna be made true. When Jesus was on that cross and the earth quaked and the mountains shook and that darkness covered and he took upon him all of the weight and the brunt of our sin. It's foretelling of that day when a true and better David, Jesus Christ, would come and cancel our sin and, and, and deliver and complete a true and better deliverance from sin. This is the the graphic look at Jesus I think that we have here in Psalm 18 is a graphic look at the Jesus who comes down for us. That we're not left to wallow in our grief. That we're not left to uh, be isolated and alone. That that God and Jesus Christ has come down and taken that grief as his own. As it says in verse 9 in Psalm 18 that he bowed the heavens also. That he bent the heavens to come down for us. This my friends, is what makes Christianity unlike any other religion in the world. That it doesn't tell us how we can become like gods, it tells us how God became like us in order to save us. As it says in Philippians two, verse seven, that he condescended, let me read it for you, Philippians two, seven, but he made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. The very God who could bend the heavens comes down to our earth and feels all of the weight of our grief and sin and pain and suffering. The God who made the dirt and the dust comes and takes on dirt and dust for us. The creator of the heavens bends them to become part of the very creation that rejected it and he becomes part of it in such a way that he dies our very death. In Philippians 2.8, it says, and being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. He became obedient unto death, even yours, even mine. This is what David, I think, is remembering. This is what David, I think, is foretelling. It's a song of exaltation, of the great deliverance that not only David saw in his life, but that David knew one day would come in the person of the Messiah. And I think this song of deliverance isn't just meaningful for David. I think it's our song of deliverance too, because the great length that God went to deliver his son David is the same length that he has come to deliver you and I this morning. We are the redeemed and we can rejoice in this anthem because the same God that rescued David is the same God that's rescuing us this morning. This is the God of grief and he's the God of glory and he's the God of grace. And I praise, praise and thank God that he has come and taken upon us, uh, taken upon himself all of his, all our griefs, all of our sufferings. All of our wants, all of our shames, all of our sicknesses, all of our sins. He's taken them for his own and he has given us his righteousness. Perhaps my favorite verse, 2 Corinthians 5.21, I will end here. Where it says, he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin. That we might be made the righteousness of God in him. This is that great deliverance. And this is our song of deliverance. Let us pray.